You've likely heard the fairy tale called The Emperor's New Clothes. If you have, this is going to be a refresh. And if you haven't, pay close attention. A vain emperor spent a lot of state money on his clothing habit. And a couple of con men heard about this, came to town, and knew that they could trick the emperor into purchasing something for his wardrobe. And here's how they tricked him. They said to the emperor, look, we can make you a suit that's invisible to those who are impure, stupid, or incompetent. Only those who are pure in heart and smart and competent will be able to see this suit and it will be the most beautiful suit that the world has ever known. The emperor said, count me in, I'm buying. So those two con men show up and set their looms up in the emperor's throne room and begin to weave. And there's no thread and no fabric on the loom, but they're weaving in order to sell the emperor this suit. And one individual in the kingdom, one peasant after another, one trusted advisor after another, one peer after another, comes into the emperor's throne room and says, oh, what wonderful fabric. Oh, how beautiful your suit is looking because they don't want to be thought of as impure, stupid, or incompetent. They kind of blow smoke up the emperor's kilt a little bit. Well, the day comes when the two con men finish the suit. The emperor puts the suit on and the two con men kind of mime dressing him and he proceeds to walk throughout town in kind of a processional so that everyone could see his brand new suit. Well, of course, he's not in a suit. He's in his birthday suit. But everybody in town continued to say, oh, what wonderful new clothing you have because no one's got the guts to tell him that he's naked. Finally, a child speaks up that's pure in heart, smart and competent. The emperor doesn't have any clothes on. And immediately the emperor knows that he's been conned. I use this illustration because here's what Paul is going to do in Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 8 today. He's going to strip us bare, spiritually speaking. Like that child, he's going to say to us, you might be wearing kind of some spiritual clothes, but you stand naked and ashamed before a living God. You might think your sin is covered, but you are uncovered. Here's why Paul wants to tell us that. Because you can't put on grace until you have nothing else to wear. You can't be clothed in grace until you have nothing else to wear. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes says in his commentary about Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He writes this, As we approach the third chapter of Romans, we must keep in mind that it, that is pride, well describes the condition of the Jews Paul was addressing. The Jews imagined themselves to be clothed with a righteousness that was actually non-existent. So Paul stripped away their layers of delusion. Paul undressed them, proving that having God's word is no guarantee of life. Paul also stripped away their errant confidence in circumcision, showing that their religious affiliation would not save them. Paul is going to strip us bare, spiritually speaking. He wants us to be in our birthday suit. In the all together, as they say, naked as the day we were born, wearing only a smile, buck naked. Is it buck, buck or butt? 
buck or butt naked. I'm not sure which one it is. Nakey, some of you may say in your home. In the South, we say a couple of phrases. One of them is naked as a jaybird, naked as a jaybird, or, or uh, nothing between you and the emperor, but a few morning glories. That's where Paul wants us to end up today. So that, so that we could be clothed in grace because you can only be clothed in grace when you have nothing else to wear. Let's read Romans chapter three, verse one through eight together and watch Paul begin to strip us bare of any kind of spiritual clothing, so to speak. Paul writes this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, Paul says. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Verse seven, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So as we read that passage, you might have thought the very same thing that I thought when I first read this passage this week. In the words of my two-year-old son, what the hey? What the hey? What in the world is going on? In fact, a 20th century uh, commentator, Bible scholar, calls this the most difficult passage in all the book of Romans. And Thomas Schreiner would agree with him that this is the most difficult paragraph in all of Romans. But if we're to pick it apart just a little bit and kind of understand what Paul is doing here, I think we can simplify it enough for us to understand the argument that Paul is making. So remember that Paul engages in what's called a diatribe format. That is to say, this is kind of an imaginary question and answer session with an imaginary conversation partner or interlocutor. So uh, I use that word imaginary, but let's be real careful here. This is not a person that Paul has created in his head. Rather, these would have been actual objections that actual people would have kind of shoved Paul's way as he has preached the gospel for 25 years all across the Mediterranean world. Some Bible scholars go so far as to say that this is a conversation between Paul the Jew and Paul the Christian. It's Paul pre-Jesus and Paul post-Jesus. In either case, we got to understand this as a conversation that's happening. And his imaginary conversation partner is going to push back against the gospel of grace in a couple of ways. Now, the objections that this imaginary conversation partner is going to kind of uh, put forward for Paul are uh, nuanced and subtle, but we're gonna kind of take them in two big chunks, two primary objections. So remember what Sawyer talked about this last week, that Paul has been talking at the end of Romans chapter two, that your Jewishness 
uh, is not what saves you. you. Your circumcision is not what, what saves you. Dietary restrictions and religious observations and all these things, it's not what saves you. So Paul's imaginary conversation partner has a very logical question to begin chapter three and verse one. So what advantage has the Jew or what value has circumcision? Logical question, right? So what in the world does this matter anyway? This person asked Paul. And we might expect Paul to respond by saying, well, it doesn't have any value at all. But surprisingly, Paul responds in a much different way than we would expect. What advantage has the Jew or what value is circumcision? Paul says much in every way. This original Greek word is P-O-L-Y-S, polis, polis. It's where we get our word poly, as in a polytechnic school. Poly meaning many and technic meaning Technic? Anyway, this word means many. There are many things that are valuable as part of your Jewish heritage. Now, Paul is going to get into the details of all the valuable parts of that heritage in Romans chapter 9. But here he's going to mention just one. He says, much in every way. To begin with, this word is protos in the original language, P-R-O-T-O-S, forgot my P there, as in prototype, first, first and foremost. And so some commentators and Bible scholars believe that Paul lists the first thing and he forgets to list the rest of them. I kind of believe that Paul is saying chiefly, above all, now he's gonna get more detail, like I said in Romans chapter nine, but above all, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The question in response is, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? We're going to take these two verses, the kind of the second half of verse two there, and then verse three, kind of as a chunk. The reason why is because these words that Paul uses are cognates. That is to say, they all have the same root. Here are the words. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted, there's one, with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Those four words in the original language all have the same word, root word, and that root word is pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S, a transliteration, of course, but it's translated as faith. We've talked about it before, pistuyo, the, the active trust in God. So Paul is using a play on words here to communicate to us the very first objection that his imaginary conversation partner would have to the gospel of grace. So here's the first objection, is that the gospel of grace nullifies God's covenant. The gospel of grace nullifies God's covenant. That would be the objection that his imaginary conversation partner has that Paul is gonna say, that is not true. It does not nullify God's covenant. So let's understand the objection. The objection is this, God gave us his written promises. That is the oracles of God in the original language, logia his written promises, God gave us those. So 
if there are some Jews who weren't faithful to those promises, then God can't keep His promises, thus compromising God's faithfulness. Let's reiterate the objection. The objection is this, the gospel of grace nullifies God's covenant. Why? Because God gave us His written promises. If we don't hold up our end of the bargain, then God can't hold up His end of the bargain, thus making Him unfaithful. This is the objection. Paul's answer is in verse 4. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, probably better translated, not on your life. Paul goes on, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let's stop there. Here's what Paul is saying. This word true in the original language does not mean so much honest as it does trustworthy. It's not so much honest as it is trustworthy, though God is honest, of course. But Paul is saying God is trustworthy above all things. And even if every human being went back on their word, God would still be true to his. That is to say, your faithlessness does not nullify God's faithfulness. John Calvin would say that this is the primary axiom of all of Christian philosophy. In other words, the good news of God's gracious plan for salvation is based completely upon his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his follow through, not yours. And so even if some Jews were unfaithful, it does not nullify God's faithfulness. Paul goes on, he says, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now for me, that's kind of where I start to get lost a little bit in the passage. I'm like, that's kind of an obscure quote. And what's, what's happening here? What is Paul talking about here? Well, his listener here, a Jew, a fellow Jew whom Paul loves very much, would have known exactly where this quote comes from. It comes from David's confession of sin with Bathsheba in Psalm chapter 51. What David is saying is that God is faithful to follow through on his favor and blessing. God is also faithful to follow through on his justice you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That is to say that God judges rightly and he's faithful to follow through on that justice. God is faithful to follow through on justice. God is also faithful to follow through on salvation. So the issue that Paul has with his fellow Jews is not whether the law is valuable, it's how you understand it. So, if you understand the promises of God to be a contract whereby each party does their part, then yes, man's faithfulness nullifies God's faithfulness. You don't hold up your end of the bargain, the bargain falls apart. However, if you understand the promises of God to be a covenant whereby a single party, God that is, commits to follow through regardless whether follow through means justice or favor, 
then no, man's faithfulness does not nullify the faithfulness of God because God has promised and declared and will follow through whether it is justice or favor either way. Here, here, this, hence the reason why Paul is quoting a Hebrew hero here, a hero in the nation of Israel in David. Let's put it this way. I'm always gonna be Kaya's dad, whether she's a good daughter or not. If she grows up to be a complete and total lausch, I'll still be her dad. Why? Because being her dad is who I am. It's not based on what she does. Paul's saying the same thing in different words uh, here. He says the same thing in different words to his protege, Timothy. He says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You see, God's covenant is not a bargaining table. It's an eternal promise. God is going to follow through even if and when mankind or individuals do not. So Paul's attacking that first objection. So question would be, what's Paul stripping away here then? If we're talking about Paul's trying to strip us back of things so we can be clothed in grace, what is he stripping away? Well, listen, if you're taking down notes, uh, jot this down. Paul is stripping away a me-centered gospel. Paul is stripping away a good news that's about me, about me holding up my end of the bargain, about me following through, about me uh, you know, having an ethnic heritage or being circumcised or whatever in that particular case. But in modernity, it's about me giving to the poor. It's about me attending church. It's about me getting baptized. It's about me uh, doing good things. This is a me-centered gospel. And Paul wants to say a me-centered gospel whereby you understand God's salvation plan as something that is a bargaining table or a contract. You hold up your end of the bargain, God will hold up his. If that's what you're clothed in, you stand before God naked and ashamed. He's stripping away a me-centered gospel. And a me-centered gospel is dangerous because if you think you're living up to God's standards, you become very, very proud and you don't need God. Or if you believe that you're not, which is true, and God hasn't made any provision for that, you walk around dejected and ashamed all the time. If that's a me-centered gospel. So Paul says, look, that me-centered thing that's all about you holding up your end of the bargain, that, that is invisible clothes. It's not real. You're still naked and ashamed before God. That's the first thing he wants to strip away. Let's keep reading. Verse five, more play on words here, really fun. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? You probably already heard the play on words in those couple of verses, repeated righteousness and unrighteousness. Uh, let's, uh, let's underline them here in verse five. But, our, but if our unrighteousness, there's the first one, serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. 
we're going to come back to that in a minute, those words. I just think it's very, very funny that Paul issues a little apology here. I speak in a human way. You guys, this is just so ridiculous, this objection here. I, I, I just got to tell you, just as by way of a caveat, this is not, this is not a godly objection. This is not a divine objection. I'm, I'm speaking as if it's someone else, uh, you know, sending this objection my way. I speak in a human way. So what's Paul doing here with this play on words? Well, what he's saying is, look, if we have a lack of right standing before God and it gives God the opportunity to put us in right standing with him, then God is not right to inflict wrath on us. Let me do it again. If we don't have right standing before God, but it gives God the opportunity to put us in right standing with him and show his glory, then God is not right to inflict wrath on us. In other words, we're kind of doing God a favor, aren't we? If we fail, if we're lack of right standing with him, we should be commended and rewarded because it gives God the opportunity. We should not be the objects of his wrath. If we are, then God is unrighteous to do so. Listen once again, Paul will respond. He says, by no means. Why? Because how then could God judge the world? Now, Pause for one minute. We've got to remember this is from a first century Hebrew context. So you might not agree that God is going to judge the world. But remember that we posited a few weeks ago that this is one of the cardinal tenets, the foundational theological principles from a first century Hebrew perspective that God will judge the world. So Paul comes along and he says, look, if we believe this, and his Jewish listener would say, absolutely, we believe this, then God must judge us for our unrighteousness as well. So let's put it another way. Paul says this. Okay, friends, you believe God will judge the world. His audience would say, yes, we do. Absolutely. Then Paul would respond, then how can you say that God is unjust in his judgment of you? He is either the just judge for all or he's not a just judge at all. You cannot have it both ways. Paul is deconstructing and disassembling this argument. He goes on, he says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I being condemned as a sinner? Once again, this is the response. Look, if God's truth abounds to his glory, because of my lie, because of my sin, because of my brokenness, because of my shame, again, I'm doing God a favor because his truth abounds to his glory. Verse eight, and why not do evil that good may come? Paul will ask this question later uh, in a very similar way. Why don't we just go on sinning so that grace may increase? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, there's a rumor going around, a slanderous charge, as it were, that the gospel of grace gives us permission and license to do whatever we want. Because in doing evil, God makes good come of it. In being unrighteous, God makes us righteous. In my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. I shouldn't be condemned as a sinner, Paul says. Hmm. You ever have somebody ask you a question that's so foolish 
It doesn't even warrant a response. <laughs> this is what Paul does here. Look, he doesn't even answer this question. He says, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slandering charges with saying, their condemnation is just. Man, that is a foolish, foolish question. This is ridiculous. He doesn't even answer it. Why? Because it just crumbles in the face of grace. Why? So here's the second objection that Paul's pushing back on. Listen, that grace nullifies God's justice. That grace nullifies God's justice. God is so good, so much favor, so much love, so much mercy, that his justice is simply swept under the rug. We have permission and license to behave however we want to behave, because in the end, as some would say, love wins. This is a very popular notion in modernity, by the way. There are those who preach this type of gospel. And R.C. Sproul in his commentary would say, have you lost your mind? That your theology is so simple and basic that it does not include the wrath of God? The Bible is extraordinarily clear, but because we don't want a God of wrath and because we know we have a God of grace, we struggle. We struggle to figure out this balance, this tension. We struggle to figure it out. And some have concluded that God's grace simply nullifies his justice. Paul is saying, no, grace does not nullify God's justice. You can't just forget about sin, sweep it under the rug, so to speak. But here's the great thing about the gospel of grace. Grace fulfills God's justice. It does not nullify God's justice. It fulfills God's justice in that he provided a substitute, his son, Jesus. This is why Paul would write in another letter to the church at Corinth, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. God is still just. He still judges the world. He still judges all of us. His justice is still intact. It's just that his justice finds its expression on his son on the cross rather than on you and me for all eternity. So now we have a sophisticated theology, don't we? We have a biblical theology that includes God's justice and God's wrath, but also God's love and mercy and grace. The question two would be, what's Paul stripping away here? He's stripping away this false notion that, that I'm safe from justice because God is love. I'm safe from justice because God is love. Once again, this is a popular notion in modernity. This notion that because God is love, God does not punish sin. That notion is fake. It's invisible. It's unbiblical. And it still leaves us naked before a living God. Paul is saying he is still going to judge the world. This is a false notion. I'm safe from justice because God is love. No, you're safe from justice because God's justice was fulfilled at the cross. Not because it just got swept under the rug or forgotten about or whatever. So we have a broad strokes view of what Paul is doing here. Remember, he's pushing back against two objections. The first is this. 
The gospel of grace nullifies God's covenant. Paul pushes back and says, if you misunderstand the covenant as a contract, then sure it does. But the covenant is not a contract. The covenant is a covenant. He's pushing back against this notion of a me-centered gospel whereby I live up to God's expectations and somehow earn his favor. He's saying that is not true. And if you're wearing that as your spiritual clothing, you're in your birthday suit. Second notion is this, God or grace nullifies God's justice. Once again, very popular in some modern theological circles, this false notion that grace nullifies God's justice. No, Paul says grace fulfills God's justice. And if we walk around believing this false notion that I'm safe from justice because God is love, I mean, at its foundational level, it's true, but maybe even take it a step further. I'm, I'm safe from God's justice because God's love compelled him to pour his justice out on his son rather than me. That's why I'm safe from God's justice. This is what Paul is doing to his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters whom he loves very much. So now that we've got that broad stroke view, I wanna offer you kind of a, a modern translation that I've put together from Greek observations and some of the things we've talked about. And we've jokingly called that the NLT, the new Lucas translation, but it just helps us understand the passage a little bit more. And it's just this question and answer session that Paul is gonna walk through. Once we do that, I want to apply the text. Question. Okay, Paul, so are you saying that being a part of God's covenant people has no value? Paul says, of course not. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with God's written promises. Okay, question. Well, some of God's covenant people weren't faithful to those promises. Doesn't that nullify said promises? Answer. Again, of course not. God keeps his promises even when humans don't. Even one of our own heroes, King David, reminds us that God's justice towards sin is an example that God always follow through, follows through. Question. Okay, so if our sin gives God opportunity to be faithful to his promises, then God isn't righteous in judging our sin. We're helping God out. Caveat, Paul says. I'm sorry to even mention this one. In other words, God's judgment of sin isn't just, or better yet, if my faithlessness gives God opportunity to highlight his own faithfulness, then I should not stand condemned for my faithlessness. I can just go on doing whatever I want, knowing that God will eventually use it for good, right? Answer, Paul says, there's actually a nasty rumor going around that I preach this hogwash, and those that spread the rumor stand condemned as well. So what's Paul saying here in the most difficult paragraph in Romans? He's saying, friends, you can't clothe yourself with religion, with your heritage, your ethnicity, your background, your religious observances, your baptism, your church attendance, that you take communion, that you pray to prayer, that you read your Bible. You cannot clothe yourself with religion. If you think you're clothed before a living God, you're truly unclothed and you stand before him naked and ashamed. He also says, friends, you cannot clothe yourself with this shallow theology that God is love and therefore he's always gonna be benevolent toward me and it nullifies his justice. Nobody's gonna be judged for sin. I'm not, you're not, everybody's good 
before God because that compromises the biblical truth of justice and God as judge. You cannot clothe yourself with that. If you do, you stand before God naked and ashamed. And some of you might be thinking, man, that's a lot of nudity talk today. Let me remind you what John would write to the church at Laodicea. He says, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and say that word with me, naked. We are stripped bare before a living God. And even if we think we've got clothes on, you are naked as the day you were born, spiritually speaking. So why should you care about the most difficult part in Romans? It's because Paul is like that child saying, you don't have anything on. So if we can't clothe ourselves with any of these things, with what do we clothe ourselves? Hmm, good question. Do you know that early Christians were baptized in the nude? It's true at least partially nude, sometimes completely nude. And many times women were baptized in the dark to kind of maintain that uh, Judeo-Christian uh, ethic of modesty. But they did it for a couple reasons. One is to kind of you know, align themselves with Christ who was stripped bare on the cross. The other thing uh, that kind of compelled them to do so was to represent or symbolize that they came before God, poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. Nothing in my hand I bring, as the old hymn would say. Simply to the cross I cling. And as they were baptized, they were immersed under the water, becoming like Christ in his death, and then up out of the water, becoming like him in his resurrection. As, as they stepped out of the baptismal font, they were clothed with a white robe. This really happened in the early church clothed with a white robe. So when Paul in Galatians begins to talk about this baptism uh, history and culture and practice, listen to what he says. He says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So if we can't put on our works, and if we can't put on a false theology, and if we can't put on religion, and if we can't put on any of these things and be truly clothed before God, what will truly cover us up? As the reformers would say, Christ and Christ alone. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Again, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. We are covered, we are rendered unashamed before God only because of the sacrifice of Christ, whereby God poured out his justice on his son and not on us. Friends, I beg of you, be reconciled to God through Christ, not through your works, not through your religious observances, not through your false theology, but because Christ went to the cross for you so that you could be clothed in him. I don't know if this is strange or awkward, but I want to do uh, today virtually what's called an altar call. It's an old-fashioned altar call. There may be some of you who a while ago prayed a prayer to receive Christ 
And I know that we you kind of use that language sometimes, but today I kind of like it because I would invite you to pray a prayer to receive the righteousness of Christ, receive the clothing of grace, be covered by him. And maybe you prayed that prayer a long time ago, but maybe you've strayed from it. This is a moment where you come back to Christ and rededicate your life to him. And that is not to say that you make this commitment that you're gonna be perfect from here on out and you're really gonna follow him this time. And Jesus, I'm really gonna live up to the standard this time. Paul says you can't. That's not a rededication. A rededication is this. Jesus, I have strayed from the path of grace and I once again come to your throne and ask you, oh God, to clothe me in Christ. For some of you, you, you may have never prayed that prayer before and received the grace that God extends to you. And maybe today you're starting to think, man, I think I am really stripped bare before a living God and I have nothing to reconcile myself to him, nothing that would cover my sin and shame. Well, you have something. It's God's extraordinary love and grace and the provision he made at the cross to provide a substitute for his justice. And you simply say, Jesus, I accept you as my substitute. I want to be clothed in you and God by his grace reconciles you to himself and forgives your sin and you walk in newness of life in kind of that metaphorical white robe. Friends, I wanna give you 30 seconds. 30 seconds to just pray one of those prayers. There's no magic words. There's no special thing that you need to say, but I wanna give you 30 seconds if you feel led to do so today to respond to the call of grace. Let's pause, give people an opportunity to respond to that call. you said yes to Jesus today, perhaps for the very first time, perhaps it's because you've strayed from him and you want to walk in newness of life again, we would love to know. You can let us know in the chat box there. You can jump on our website at bayviewglen.org. Drop us a line, drop us an email. We would love to know and walk with you in this walk of grace.